BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. David Daly is with us. Your vote won't help restore abortion rights. He's going to tell us about how Republicans are rigging elections right now as we speak. And also, will the abortion battle seal the deal on America becoming a mutually hostile legal territory, different states? Is this the beginning of the breakup of America? We'll get into that. Also, a British scientist says that uh, American anti-abortion lawyers have badly misused his uh, work, including in the Alito decision, to attack Roe v. Wade. And, And this all has to do with fetal pain. Turns out the part of the brain that processes fetal pain isn't, doesn't even develop until around 24 weeks. So it's just all of this stuff, fascinating stuff that we'll be talking about in the program today. But I want to start out. Back in the day, Frank Schaefer and, and before him his father worked very successfully to help the uh, hardcore religious right infiltrate the Republican Party and American politics in general. I, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing that. Frank is the author of numerous books. His latest, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. Frank Schaefer, S-C-H-A-E-F-F-E-R.com is his website. And his Twitter handle is Frank underscore Schaefer. Frank, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since you've been on. And I, I, I wanted to get your take and your thoughts, particularly in the light of the Supreme Court decision, about how, exactly how the religious right has hijacked the Republican Party. Well, first of all, Tom, thanks for having me back on. And, you know, post-COVID, I always <laughs> meet people who I've known in the past and say, hey, I'm glad you're still alive and mm-hmm. kicking somewhere. So uh, back at you. nice to be with you. Uh, yeah, the question you asked is a huge one. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a thumbnail history in terms of my own family's involvement, which obviously is my perspective. Back in the 1970s, I made a series of religious documentaries with my late father, Francis Schaefer. The first was called How Should We Then Live on Art and Culture? The second, Whatever Happened to the Human Race on what we called the life issues, really the abortion issue. And that series came about because Dr. C. Everett Koop, who became Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General, was a friend of our families and essentially talked me in my early 20s into making this second series. And then I twisted my dad's arm and he got into it as well. And when I say twisted his arm, this is a point, Tom, that a lot of people don't understand. Um, When Roe v. Wade came down, up until that point, 
evangelicals were split pretty evenly on the issue of abortion, which most folks don't understand. They think somehow that evangelicals were in the same position that the Roman Catholic Church had always been, where it was an official position of the church on contraception, abortion, you know, adultery, you name it, all these different issues that the church had a moral teaching on. Evangelicals did not buy into that. Evangelicals allowed contraception when the Catholics did not. Evangelicals were pro-choice as much as they were uh, anti-abortion. So, for instance, when we made this series, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, that a lot of historians credit with being the beginning of the evangelical wing of the pro-life movement, which then was the beginning of the takeover of the Republican Party, Folks like Billy Graham, the evangelist, who was the world famous evangelist, um, Dr. Criswell, who was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and you don't get any more conservative or evangelical than that, not only would not take part in our seminars where they had helped us earlier with non-abortion uh, related issues, but came out very clearly as pro-choice. Uh, Criswell even preached a sermon on why he thought women should have the right to choose. And, this, I remind you, is the head of the Southern Baptist Convention. That is the evangelical right. ground zero. So you've got Billy Graham and the head of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1972 saying abortion should be legal. Absolutely. And the point people don't realize is that had Roe v. Wade not become the catalyst that it did, A, and B, had we not made these films and book series and toured the country with Dr. Coop and my dad and others, it, there, there, there's a good possibility that not only state by state, including the southern states where evangelicals like Criswell were pro-choice and or ambivalent as in, hey, that's a Catholic issue. It's nothing to do with us. Those states would have allowed abortion. They were already allowing abortion. I mean, remember, it was a, a Republican governor of New York, uh, Rockefeller, that legalized abortion in New York state. And you say, oh, well, that's a liberal state. How about California? Ronald Reagan legalized abortion in California, state by state. Right. Folks that wanted abortion to be legal were winning the battle. And Both Reagan's abortion law was the most liberal in America, actually. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. Was... So I, I just want to make that point, Tom, because I think a lot of people don't understand something. And that is they, they look at the present tense American politics where abortion is the litmus test. The Federalist Society had a list of judges they wanted uh, to be nominated. They've been fighting for them for 30 years to get them on the courts. And now they've won that all, all because Trump became president. He made a deal with religious right leaders like Ralph Reed, Franklin Graham, ironically, the son of Billy Graham, who was pro-choice. And basically, they gave him a list of judges and they said, listen, we, we don't care how many people you've had sex with, how many divorces you've got, who you've groped. Here's the list of judges. You appoint these people, you'll always have our vote. Again, because abortion had become the litmus test so associated with not just the religious right, but what you might call the white Christian nationalist movement today. Right. But you roll the clock back and it wasn't so. So the first point to make is that when dad and I went out with those films, Whatever Happened to the Human Race and the book that went with them, our battle was not with big, bad, secular people or Planned Parenthood, you name it. Our battle was with evangelical leadership. I'll give you one more example. The editorial board of Christianity Today magazine refused to review this film series by Francis Schaeffer when it first came out because they were pro-choice. They were Billy Graham's magazine. He started it. Wheaton College is the evangelical Harvard. It's where everything happens. The Billy Graham Center is there. They wouldn't invite us to speak. Franklin Graham, uh, Billy Graham was pro-choice. 
the the Christianity Today magazine editorial board was either ambivalent or pro-choice. So the first battle that we had was not with secular people or the secular media. It was with fellow evangelicals who said, this has nothing to do with us. Why on earth are we supposed to sign on to this Catholic issue? And I just want to make that point because most people don't get how far we have traveled from a Republican Party and a Democratic Party where you were having evangelicals in pretty much equal numbers voting both ways, Democrat right. or Republican. In the 70s. And now, yeah. yeah, in the 70s. And so the idea that somehow evangelicals always vote Republican is predicated only on these litmus tests. And they've spent 30, 40 years now trying to make the Republican Party into their image. So it isn't that the, the Republican Party co-opted evangelicals. It's that evangelicals co-opted the Republican Party based on a series of so culture war issues. And sadly, my family uh, were instrumental in making the abortion issue itself, a kind of a misogyny issue itself, part of that culture war. Remarkable, remarkable. So, so then uh, Reagan came in, Reagan who had signed, this was 1980, he had signed the most liberal abortion law in the nation as governor of California. His right. vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, his wife was on, uh, if not on the board, on an advisory board for Planned Parenthood. They were both big donors to Planned Parenthood. Um, and, and their advisor, their connection to the evangelical community was George W. Bush, their son, and yeah. and he cut a deal apparently if i'm if i'm remembering this right with uh, jerry falwell who had been running w all whites only christian academies to get around the requirement for segregation of public schools yeah. to to go nuts on abortion as the the cleave as as the as the thing that was going to separate the republican party from the democratic party in the 1980s and in that 1980 election am i remembering that correctly frank Absolutely. And of course, the other point was the evangelicals hated Jimmy Carter because they found he was too liberal on integration and he was against whites only schools. You know, frankly, he was too much of a Christian. I mean, yeah. I know that sounds crazy, but he was actually a, a Christian who believed in the teachings of Christ and tried to apply them to his life. And so he couldn't be a good evangelical because you mentioned Jerry Falwell, famous segregationist. His big thing was anti-gay. He was going around talking about the homosexual agenda, blah, 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 blah. And when the abortion issue came up at first, Jerry Fall wanted nothing to do with it. But he, as in with many evangelical leaders, recognized two elements about this that they liked. And it had nothing to do with the issue of abortion. A, it gives us another bludgeon with which to hit the secular humanist culture that is going down the drain with feminism and gay rights and lesbians and bra burning, you know, their whole apocalyptic vision of culture. I remember the 70s. Yes. Yeah, you remember that. You were there. And then the other thing was that, that Jerry Falwell was typical of a breed of evangelical that were very hungry for power. And so you give them any red meat issue that does two things, helps raise funds, keeps the troops stirred up, you know, the world is, we're, the, the sky is falling again, send me $25 and we can prop it up for another week or two on one hand. And then the other thing, a direct avenue to people like uh, Ronald Reagan. And so Falwell, um, in part of the battle, the pushback against Jimmy Carter and so forth, um, was convinced to take a quote stand on the issue by my father and by some other people like Paul Weirich, who was a Roman Catholic, a uh, far-right activist, a direct male guru and all the rest of this, put a package together saying, well, you know, we'll make this an issue and uh, it'll be good for fundraising and maybe we can bring these. And here's another thing people don't get. 
these apathetic white evangelicals who most of the time aren't even voting because they aren't into politics at all. Think of that. That same group that gave us Donald Trump, 83% of whom voted for him, they were known to vote for Democrats, Republicans, and above all, they were apathetic about politics in right. general. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give unto God what is God's. Yeah, they, they were, they were busy going yeah. to church and, and right. doing all that kind of thing right. instead of trying to win elections. Frank, that, we're down to about history. a minute and a half here to, to bring us up to current moment. Yeah. Current moment, Roe v. Wade will be rolled back and it will not end there because what has happened now with people like Amy Coney Barrett is they have set their sights on basically what is a theocracy program where they want to, quote, bring America back to its biblical roots as they see it. And to do that, we're going to see gay marriage attacked, transgender rights attacked. The abortion thing will not be the end of the reproductive rights fight. It's going to go to contraceptive. How do we know that? Because already during the Obama presidency, there were suits brought by people like Hobby Lobby and others who did not want to have to pay for contraceptives for their female employees. They didn't even want to pay insurance premiums that included that. It's already on the agenda as part of the fight. And so the, the real battle now is, are we going to have a democracy or a theocracy? And according to the Christian nationalists, they won't feel right about this country until the country is aligned with what they call biblical absolutes. And if you want to know what those are, just reread the Old Testament, the book of right. Leviticus and all the rest of that. It's not going to be a happy place. It's, a, it's How do an we fight back against this, Frank? How do we fight back? Vote for Democrats and never elect a Republican again in the rest of your life because that party is utterly corrupted by the religious right. Amazing. Speaking as part of the religious right and a former Republican, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, my parents stayed in the Ford White House. I had Mike Ford living in my house. Wow. Amazing. Frank Schaefer, Frank, uh, you are doing God's work now, I got to tell you, my friend. Thank you so much for Thanks, dropping Tom. by. FrankSchaefer.com, the website, Frank underscore Schaefer. Check out his book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. Vicki in uh, Lipia, Washington. Hey, Vicki, what's on your mind today? Well, Tom, I want to speak to some aspects of illegal abortion that I lived through. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in 1965, I found myself pregnant. I was not, didn't feel myself emotionally, physically, or financially able to deal with it at my young age. Um, I sought an abortion doctor. I put that in quotes. Um, I was referred to an apartment house. I was given a room number. Um, I went in. It was very dark. The shades were all pulled. It was filled with women, most of them alone, interestingly enough. And just this palpable feeling of terror and sadness. I mean, all these years later, it practically makes me cry. Um, I sat there for four hours watching women go into this door, um, presumably exiting somewhere else because they never came back through. Um, and I was finally motioned into this room. Uh, there were no formalities at all. This doctor told me to remove my pants and get on the table. That yeah. was it. So I looked around, and I saw how dirty this room was. Uh, there was soiled coverings on this table that I was supposed to get on, a uh, pile of tools, which <laughs> were sterile or not, I didn't know. And, you know, at that moment, I felt that I would rather die by my own hands than his. Wow. So, so you backed I away had from paid, I had paid $500 up front. That's a lot of money in 1965. I had to yeah. borrow it from friends. 
So I left there pregnant <laughs> and owing $500. Um, you know, I mean, I do not want women to go back to that. I'm with you. I'm with you. Vicki, thank you for sharing your story. That's amazing. Thank you. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back. Picking up your phone calls, Tony in Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I want to be the 800-pound liberal in the room okay? and expand on your theory of the browning of America. We, all, we already know the majority of abortions are done with, done to, well, for young or younger white women. What's going to happen with this demographic when they go to college and expand on the browning here. I went through uh, Lubbock, Texas uh, over the weekend, and I noticed, okay, uh, the younger white students were with uh, African men, African-American men, Hispanic, Indian. What's going to happen when this browning starts at a college level and starts going up and there's no Roe v. Wade, there's no contraception, there's no being able to leave the state to a neighboring uh, sanctuary state to get the procedure done. What's going to happen? And You're talking about to interracial babies? Yes. So, well, that, that might be an exception that Greg Abbott would go along with, Ron DeSantis. <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't even jest. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's bizarre. It, it really, truly is bizarre. Tony, one of the reasons, by the way, that college-educated people are less likely to hold overtly racist sentiments or political viewpoints is because, by and large, they have had interactions with people of different races that increasingly were lacking in high schools and elementary schools as America has kind of right. self-segregated over the last 30 years. So when you, talk about, when you talk about the evangelical church, okay, I grew up in the South, as you know. Uh, just because you've got white skin in the South doesn't mean you're 100% white. Carol Channing, the celebrity, was a good example of that. So 
you still have that chance where the Republican Party, the evangelical church, the Catholic church, if they get rid of all of the protections, we'll just say, there's still no guarantee they're going to get this influx of these pure white babies that they're wishing for. In fact, it could go just the opposite. Yeah, we're, we're already we're already seeing that now. That's and it's, it's, my father, my father was Muslim, and I remember I'm 52, and I remember at 14, Minister Farrakhan. I heard this said at the rate the races were mixing, the white race at its current state would cease to exist by 2030. We're almost there. And what's happening? (laughs) Yeah, well, America is now, in terms of births, is now majority minority. And within 30 years or so, the entire country, uh, top to bottom, is going to be majority minority. Excellent points, Tony. Thank you. Thank you very much. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I uh, want to follow up on Shelf from last week. I had spoken to you about uh, data tracking and data brokers related to abortion clinics and other vicinities. The very next day, uh, Vice News broke a story about this, who the buyers are, um, you know, what the the data's purpose is. And we know this is a well-funded organization. Uh, So you throw in the vigilante lawsuit stuff and an abundancy of individuals who can be targeted. And this, I'm telling you, this cell phone thing um, I'm talking to you on a flip phone, and I refuse to carry a smartphone in the U.S. I'll, I'll carry one in Europe, but I won't do it in the U.S. because the EU's got way better data privacy laws, and they enforce them. Right. But this data is um, its a hot item, you know, like uh, the iPod versus the Zuni and the Microsoft, all the other MP3 players that went the way of the dinosaur as, as the iPod dominated because everybody wanted that. This data is the kind of data that these kinds of people have been wanting to have because their whole tactic, if you look at what they do around clinics, is identifying individuals who are either engaged in or sympathetic to uh, abortion rights and go at them hard. And when you give them criminal and civil penalty powers, the targeting of individuals is going to be it's a coming flood, I'm sure of it. It's when the police agencies and start doing this. Tom, they will, and because they're, oh, they're, they're able to get around the Fourth Amendment if they purchase it. Yeah. They, yeah. they can purchase the data. I had my only experience ever in my life with it last year. Police came to my house because they said a phone pinged there. Turns out it was an Instagram post that was like within a quarter mile. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it was rough. It was scared the hell out of me. Eric, thank you for the call. <laughs> it's weird times coming. I, you know, I think we can pretty much guarantee that. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about this British scientist who says that the, his, his uh, information is being misused. To the Tom Hartman program. Specifically, it's being misused to attack Roe v. Wade. I'll tell you about that on the other side of the break and continue picking up your phone calls. And welcome back. Uh, oh, I, there was a story I want to share with you real quickly. This, this is fascinating. Gianda Gomecchio Ilianti is a researcher that uh, he, he's, he's used research to image brains and things like that. And he's quite upset because his uh, professor Ianati 
Uh, his research has been basically used by anti-abortion people in the United States to make an argument that he never made. And the argument specifically is that a fetus at 24 weeks, which is basically the end of the period of time when you can legally do an abortion in the United States, can feel pain. And actually, he said, my, research, my results by no means imply that the cortex isn't necessary to feel pain. I feel they were misinterpreted and used in a very clever way to prove a point. It distresses me that my work was misinterpreted. Now, here's what his work actually concludes. And this, uh, again, this is from The Guardian, a piece by Anne Fazakerly. It's titled, British Scientist uses, says U.S. anti-abortion lawyers misused his work to attack Roe v. Wade. Leading pain scientists and academic medical societies on both sides of the Atlantic strongly dispute the anti-abortion legal argument. Um, they say the surgeons who operate on fetuses say that there is movement on surgical intervention after week 36. He says, he goes on to say, there is no rational basis for arguing a fetus can suffer pain before 24 weeks. The anatomy of the brain is not formed enough for that to be possible. The fetus is in an essentially sleep-like state in the womb. Amazing. Amazing. Because this is like, look at one of their main arguments. Anyhow. Uh, one other uh, story I wanted to flag for you. This, this was over on the uh, NakedCapitalism.com website by uh, Eve, uh, the, Eve Smith, the, uh, the systems operator or the person who runs the board. And uh, it's titled, Experts Warn GOP War on Abortion Will Turn Red and Blue States into Mutually Hostile Legal Territories. And I, I thought this was fascinating. Um, experts are warning, I'm quoting from the story, experts are warning that the GOP's war on, adoption, uh, on abortion excuse me, will lead to interstate legal battles that threaten to tear America apart. Um, uh, this was uh, uh, Michelle Goldberg writing in the Washington Post, uh, wrote, the demise of Roe will exacerbate America's antagonisms, creating more furious legal rift, rifts between states than we've seen in modern times. Um, they note that uh, as soon as next month, when this decision comes down, abortion could instantly be outlawed in up to 26 states, uh, with uh, 11 of them having no exception for rape, incest, or uh, human trafficking. On the other hand, Goldberg notes, here in Oregon, where I live, uh, our legislature, and I pointed this out to you when this happened a couple of months ago, uh, uh, passed a bill to create a $15 million fund to help uh, cover the cost of abortion, including the cost of traveling to Oregon from other states for that procedure. And there's similar legislation that's working its way through the uh, legislature in uh, California. But then you've got Missouri State Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman, who's already trying to pass a law in Missouri to bar pregnant people from leaving the state to get an abortion as thousands of residents have done since uh, Go Republican Governor Mike Parsons signed an abortion ban into law back in 2019. Um, we have seen an 800% increase in patients to abortion clinics in the states surrounding Texas since their Senate Bill 8 went into, it, into effect, their vigilante anti-abortion law. And uh, so now what, what we're learning, and, and you know, more and more of the kind of nuance of this is coming out, that more than half of all abortions performed now in the United States are people taking pills. 
And so now you've got multiple, you've got uh, three, three states' governors who have come right out and said, you know, we will consider not only uh, outlawing abortion pills, but even outlawing uh, contraception and IUDs. You had two governors on the weekend programs who, were, who, who said, you know, maybe. So you can see where this is all going. It's all going toward more white babies. The message is out there. Before Roe v. Wade, one in five white babies was put up for adoption. After Roe v. Wade, it was only 3%. Big difference. So the, the we need more white babies crowd is really, really pushing this. All righty. So let me pick up your phone calls here. Joan in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Joan, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, abortion starts with the male. A woman cannot become pregnant without sperm. So if men are so concerned about the rates, the high numbers of abortion, then it, they should take more responsibility. And since uh, men have no problem with trying to control women's bodies, then it should become law that at the age of 14 or whenever it is that males can impregnate a female, they should be uh, given a vasectomy. It's a simple procedure. It doesn't affect their libido, but it protects women and children who are born into situations that the woman does not control. She cannot really provide for them financially, emotionally, or whatever. Yeah. Another another argument, Joan, is that it, when uh, whenever an abortion happens, they should do DNA on the fetus, determine who the father is, and that father must be forced to get a vasectomy. All of this, though, uh, assumes that there's something wrong with getting an abortion, and therefore there have to be consequences. And I, I, frankly, and I suspect you agree with me on this, um, the government should just get the hell out of the way. This this should not be, uh, you know, the government should not be inserting itself between women and their doctors. Period. Exactly, and it's just about controlling women's bodies. Yes. Because uh, when you think about it, they do not care about life once it's outside of the uterus. Because if they did, they would not put women through what they're putting them through. They would not force babies, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, to give birth to a baby. They say they care about babies, but yet they're forcing babies to have babies. Well, and and where does that make sense? Yeah, and if this was about life, uh, you know, Republicans would be arguing that we need to give free diapers to, to newborn, you know, to, to new mothers and, and uh, you know, infant formula if, when a mother can't nurse and, and uh, you know, postnatal care and uh, early child care. And, and really, Tom, what they're doing is aborting the life outside of the uterus. Every day, every week, every month, every year that they do not provide uh, adequate education and, and jobs and pay for the parents to take care of these kids, they are aborting that life. Well, and we have 12 you can states. You walk around and see kids dying. You can see kids, 9, 10, 5 years old, no life, no light in their eyes. Those kids are aborted after they were born. I agree. It happens every day. I get it. And, and we have 12 states now, where all Republican-controlled states, where if you make under $16,000 a year, you can't even get health insurance. You can't afford it, 
and you don't qualify for Medicaid because those 12 states have not expanded Medicaid. So, you know, when a, a, a working family making under $16,000 a year has a child, they got nothing. They can't even pay for the, for the birth. Exactly. Exactly. And they're talking about all of the taxes that go towards taking care of the poor. Yeah. Stop forcing the poor to have more children than they can afford. It's just ridiculous. There you go. I'm with you, Joan. Thank Joan, you. thank you very much. And thanks for watching Free Speech TV there in Nashville. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So we caught this article on the Boston Globe, Your Vote Won't Help Restore Abortion Rights, which is certainly a thought-provoking or provocative headline. It's written by uh, David Daly. He's a senior fellow at fairvote.org. He's also the author, in fact, he's been on the program before, of, of the book Rat F to Why Your Vote Doesn't Count and Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Also the former editor-in-chief at Salon.com. Uh, you can tweet him at Dave Daly number 3 or at fairvote. Dave, welcome back to the program. Uh, tell us about why our vote won't help restore abortion rights. Thanks for having me back on, Tom. Um, the short answer is gerrymandering. What Justice Alito said in this draft opinion that uh, is presumed likely to become the new law of the land is that it was time to return abortion uh, to the political process in the states. The trouble is, as Justice Alito well and fully knows, uh, that the, the game has already been rigged by his side in the states. Republicans rule from the minority in places like Ohio and Florida, Texas, uh, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, where uh, it is all but impossible for even majorities of Democrats amounting to hundreds of thousands of voters to change their elected representatives and and put the other side in power. So if these state legislatures are wired in such a way that one side has all of the power, even when the voters are on the other side, returning the process to, to politics doesn't work. Yeah, so like in Florida, where Ron DeSantis won by 33,000 votes, 
Uh, Donald Trump carried the state by only 51 percent, you note in your article here in the Boston Globe. And yet in their House of Representatives, the Florida House of Representatives, even though the state is about 50-50 in terms of, or 51-49 in terms of people voting for Democrats or voting for Republicans, they have uh, 78 Republicans and 39 Democrats, um, which is pretty mind-boggling. The Republicans hold 65 percent of the state house. And, uh, how, and, and that's, I mean, you know, the same thing in Ohio, the same thing in Wisconsin, the same thing in Michigan, as you pointed out. So, uh, number one, I'm assuming that, in part, this is something that could have been corrected by the Supreme Court long ago, but they chose not to? That's exactly right. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court effectively blessed the radical extreme partisan gerrymandering of our states, uh, you know, in a handful of decisions back in, in the last decade, especially in one uh, in 2019, in which they closed the the federal courts to to partisan gerrymandering claims. And what they said then was kind of hilarious. They said, well, if voters want to do something about gerrymandering, they can elect different people to draw these maps. And the entire problem here is that the maps are drawn by politicians to lock themselves in power and to keep the voters on the other side, even huge majorities of them. Um, and the polls on this issue haven't really budged in two decades. A majority of Americans want to see Roe versus Wade remain law. They do not want to see abortion rights overturned. This is the case in Florida. It's the case in Texas. It's the case in Alabama, in Oklahoma, in Ohio, in Georgia, in state after state where legislatures are moving to restrict reproductive rights. And in all of the states where they will jump on this uh, in the next several weeks, if this draft opinion becomes law, the polls are on the other side. Alito wants to turn it back to the political process, but that doesn't work when the game is rigged. All right. So two kind of issues come to mind. One is a number of blue states, a number of Democratic controlled states have basically unilaterally disarmed California, for example. And I know they're not the only one. I'm guessing you've got this stuff right at the top of mind has nonpartisan commissions that draw districts that are, you know, drawn along geographic and, and uh, demographic lines or, or population lines, basically. So they're not, you know, taking into consideration the kinds of things that you do when you gerrymander, you know, uh, race or political affiliation or affluence or whatever. And, you know, there are some folks who are saying you, sh you shouldn't do that. You should, you know, if the Republicans are going to gerrymander, you should gerrymander like crazy until you get, you know, enough of a, because we're, you know, the, the, the reason that everybody is saying that the Democrats are probably going to lose the House of Representatives this fall is because so many states now have so effectively gerrymandered. And when Democrats try, like in New York State, it gets struck down by a bunch of democratically appointed uh, Supreme Court justices, state Supreme Court justices. And when Republicans try in, in some states and it gets struck down, they just say, screw you, we're going to do it anyway. You're exactly right. We're watching this unfold right now in the state of Ohio, where Republicans have drawn a 13 to 2 map that is uh, that has been rejected by the state Supreme Court now four times. And yet they are just persisting and they have run out the clock so long that they're going to have the 2022 elections in Ohio for Congress on a map that has been declared unconstitutional. Republicans will likely win 13 of the 15 seats in a state that's probably 53-47 on a presidential breakdown, maybe 54-46. And that could shift four or five congressional seats. The balance of power 
in Congress right now is only four or five congressional seats. So this unconstitutional map could make all the difference for the entire country. So you, I think you're exactly right when you say what Democrats have done here is not enough. Um, we have got to be thinking not just about how you fix partisan gerrymandering, which is a huge problem, but we have got to be thinking about the structure of the U.S. Senate, where it's right now 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans, even though 41 million more people nationally prefer Democratic candidates in 2020. Uh, by 2035, you are likely to have a U.S. Senate uh, that 70 percent of the population lives in 30 states and has 30 senators. So when you add the filibuster in, you are giving smaller, whiter, rural conservative states an effective veto power over everything. Right, that's which is the whole point of it. <laughs> I mean, you know, exactly. let's just be upfront about this. First of all, it seems to me that Democrats' messaging sucks on this. Nobody <laughs> knows what gerrymander means. They need to stop referring to these things as gerrymanders and start calling them rigged elections. Amen. Number one. Number two, you know, the Republicans got their rigged elections through a court-based strategy. They took case after case after case to the Supreme Court and packed the court as heavily as they could so mm -hmm. that they could be allowed to gerrymander. Um, There's there no mistake about it. And they also uh, just pull out all the stops and pour massive amounts of money into state after state in the elections in the years that, that end with zero or the year immediately thereafter where, where these maps are drawn. So what should Democrats be doing now? They need a long-term structural game to win back power in state legislatures. They need to be really focused on 2022 governor races in these gerrymandered states like Wisconsin and North Carolina and Pennsylvania, where that governor is the only thing that hangs between um, a majority of voters and extreme one-sided minority rule, even in states that ordinarily tilt fairly blue. And I think it is time for us to be talking about what we're going to do to fix the United States Supreme Court, which has six conservative justices, five of them appointed by presidents that lost the popular vote and confirmed by a U.S. Senate that lacks any that represents uh, a minority of America to a majority. Right. Uh, and so um, we have to be talking about how we are going to balance and right size the federal uh, judiciary if we want to have any hope of remaining a country in which the majority rules. Yeah. So let's let's hope that uh, Democratic leadership is listening. I'm sure they're aware of this. The um, tall order. Yeah, but uh, it is time to take names and kick ass and call Amen. this election rigging because that's what exactly what it is. David Daly, his uh, his article you can find over at the Boston Globe, Why Your Vote Doesn't... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. He's also the author of Rat Aft, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count and Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Hang on, David. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And David Daly, three and fair vote over on Twitter. David, thank you for dropping by. Great talking with you. Always a pleasure. Anytime, Tom. Thank you. Back at you. We'll Picking up your calls, Chris in Kokomo, Indiana. It says you disagree with me, Chris. What's up? Well, yeah, I just I don't understand why you keep saying that Republicans don't care about these 
children after they're born or their families. Because we've got 12 states where Republicans refuse oh. to expand Medicaid. Bologna, bologna, Tom. My my wife's sister had two babies, didn't cost Chris, her Chris, there a are 12 dime. states where then Republicans refuse to expand Medicaid. So you're telling me in there, those 12 there, states... MP- there are 12 states controlled by Republicans where if a woman is pregnant, she bologna. cannot get health care if she is poor or the working poor. It's true. Oh, bologna. You can get health care in America anytime you need it. Bologna. No, you cannot, Chris. You can show up at an emergency room if you're bleeding out. If your cancer has gone to the point where it's burst through the skin, you can show up at an ER. But if you show up at an ER and say, you know, I'm pregnant and I need prenatal they care, they're going to kick you, you out. They, then go to Planned Parenthood and get your prenatal care. This, this argument about So the Planned Parenthood offices so that are being shut down by Republicans in state oh, after state, bologna, that's what you're suggesting? Baloney, baloney. Keep moving the goalposts. It's baloney. You can get health care anywhere in America. It's Chris, baloney. Chris, you are sadly misinformed. Why? No, I am not. I mean, you are what tragically you misinformed. Uh-uh. No, I'm not. Okay, Chris, I'm just, you know, you're denying reality. I'm just going to leave it at that because you're, you're becoming a, a one-note. One you know, I enjoy talking to people who disagree with me, but baloney, baloney, that's not a, that, that is not a debate. If you have an argument to make, make an argument, but, you know, same baloney, no, sorry. Angela in Bowie, Maryland. Hey, Angela, what's on your mind today? So happy to be here online. I, first, uh, protesters should be allowed to protest outside of the Supreme Court justices' homes. Yes. Yes, we should. This is exercising our First Amendment rights. It's amazing. First Amendment only seems to apply to right-wingers when they want to protest yeah. somewhere or don't like what something is being said. Well, and, and not only um, that, they put up a fence around the Supreme Court. So, you know, if you're going to close off protest at the Supreme Court, where's it going to go? To the Supreme Court justices' exactly. homes. As it should be. And, uh, you know, I just kind of feel, and I always feel the GOP is the al-Qaeda equivalent, if we're going to allow al-Qaeda to take over and tell us that we don't have control of our bodies, this, to me, is a slope that, again, I, I called your, you know, called in, I think, a month or two ago, that I think America is going towards becoming an apartheid state. Yeah. So we're, if, you, if you don't have a right to control, you don't have a right to privacy, you don't have a right to control your body, then because it's not in our history, well, hell, there was nothing stopping us from having slavery. That is in our history. To enslave people is in the U.S. history. Hell, it's the fabric of how we're how we got here. And apartheid, so, right up until well, the 1960s. Exactly. So, what's to stop us from going there as well? Yeah. And you know, so for me, I if everyone can own a gun in this country, then we're all going to be civil, right? Yeah. So then, yes, you have a right to protest everywhere you want to be. And the last part, I, I would just love to say, I would love to see for the Dems to get a message. I, I really don't like the fact that uh, Jamie Harrison says we want to hold off all the commercials until September. That's crazy. Yeah. You need to fire up and organize your base right now. So get a message. And I'd also want to say that I wish Biden would federalize abortion services. It needs to be in every hospital so that we, way we don't have these outside clinics. And I think which one, the uh, Missouri Clinic, just got bombed or we just saw this on uh, CBS 60 Minutes or CBS Sunday Morning. So, uh, again, here, here we are. So if we federalize abortion, you know, because the yeah. Supreme Court is deciding it's going to be a uh, legislative body and, you know, to, to determine how we, we all should live, then the executive branch needs to flex its muscle and actually, you know, the commander in chief actually show some muscle here and say, 
Well, I'm going to federalize abortion services. So my sense of that's this, mainly what I wanted to put out there. Yeah, I get, I get it. My sense of this, Angela, is that a sleeping giant has been awakened. That uh, Democrats generally and women specifically, for you know, for 45, 50 years, have just figured, eh, you know. Republicans are going to rage about abortion, and that's just what happens. But, you know, it's not going to be a problem. And now it's a problem. Right. And it's a problem for many reasons. Yeah. I mean, I, I still don't understand why white women want to vote for daddy being in charge, because the rest of us aren't feeling that. And, I, you know, there are some, it. you know, minorities believe that. But, you know, for me, on the larger scale of this picture, I, I just feel we're going towards an apartheid state. Yeah. Well, and, it's, it's, you know, so. Yeah, it's certainly the direction that the white supremacists want to take us. Angela, thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for listening to Progressive Voices. Nandini Jami is tweeting about a company. And I'll let you track it down yourself because I haven't personally and independently verified this, but it, uh, but it sure does look like this particular company is uh, planning to get rich off selling the data of any woman who attempts to get an abortion and selling that information directly to law enforcement. Now, presumably, they could also sell this information to bounty hunters. And let's be clear, this is not the only company in the data business. I laid this out in The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, my newest book. There are these data companies all over the place. They operate with absolutely no transparency whatsoever. You cannot get your data from them. In most cases, they won't even acknowledge your existence, but they are buying and selling your personal data. And some of the most easily available data is the tracking data. Half the apps on your phone right now are constantly telling the company that, that owns that app where you are. And then they sell that into the marketplace. So if you happen to drive by an abortion clinic, they know it. And they can flag that. They can look for that. And then they can use other data that they can buy from other data tracking companies and other big data companies to determine that, yeah, this phone probably belongs to this person or certainly belongs to this person. And then they can go to the police and say, hey, we'll take that $10,000 bounty. Or they can go to a bounty hunter and say, hey, split it with me. Here's the name. It's, it's Jane Doe. She lives on Main Street in Dallas. Go pick her up or go arrest her or go sue her, her husband for helping her get an abortion because I, you know, I can prove that she was outside an abortion clinic in, in uh, Louisiana or in uh, New Mexico just last week. Here's the data. This is absolutely mind-boggling. Get ready for it. It's 1984. Brave New World is here. Marie in Oakland, California. Hey, Marie, what's on your mind today? Oh, hey, Tom. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. Well, thank thank you. you for everything that you do. Um, I, I did want to quickly reinforce something about that homicide is a leading cause of maternal death in the U.S. I'm, I'm looking at an article in Nature from just the end of last year, mm -hmm. if you're interested, showing that women die um, by homicide more than twice the rate of bleeding or placental disorders. I am. Um, yeah, that, that, anyway. That's, yeah, I mean, that's mind-boggling, you know? It's just yeah, mind-boggling. <laughs> Anyway, the main reason I called is I wanted to see if anyone had weighed in on how the private for-profit health insurance companies might react to states mandating pregnancy. For example, 
you know, if a woman wants to get a morning after pill or abortion pill and is told, no, you must carry your pregnancy to term, the insurance companies are now going to have to pay for perinatal care, hospital delivery, maybe C-section, and adding a new dependent to a policy. You know, I'm just curious how this will play out since Republicans don't care about women, but right. they will likely be concerned about insurance company profits. So I'm predicting they'll cry foul and find a way to sue the states, but... Uh, I doubt it. And, and, and the reason the reason I doubt it, Marie, is that the insurance companies have this racket going where whenever their costs go up, they simply raise their rates. And, yeah. and you know, uh, they've got a captive audience. Uh, you know, we pay more than twice as much for health insurance in the United States as any other country in the world. Literally. More than twice as much as any other country in the world. True. And, and we're getting less for it. But we've, we're also the only developed country in the world, and in fact, I'd say we're probably the only country in the world that has a giant, blood-filled, bloated, blood-sucking leech attached to its back called the health insurance industry. Uh, you right. know, in other countries, you may have a very small health insurance industry that offers insurance to very wealthy people who want to have private jets take them someplace if they, you know, if they're out of the country or whatever, or they want to have a, a private room in, in the hospital rather than share a room, you know, those kind of things. But yeah. that's pretty much the province of health insurance in every other developed country in the world. We are the only one that does not have a national health, health program any longer. We're it. Yes, that's it. Said which is just nuts but 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 they they yeah. they can basically get anything they want so i doubt they're going to weigh in on this but your point is well taken and you know it's another one of these variables in, in the equation yeah thank you marie yeah, just curious. great to hear from you Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Pat Mitchell it's titled Becoming a Dangerous Woman Embracing Risk to Change the World this is from the preface titled, The Most Dangerous Woman in the Room. Yes, I'll be there. Eve Ensler was calling with an invitation to what she described as the meeting of movements planned for the first week of January 2017. In the wake of a polarizing presidential election in the United States, Eve had decided it was time for activists to come together to shape strategies that would unify and leverage the collective power of a wide range of social justice organizations. Who else is coming, I asked. I'm not releasing the invitation list, Eve replied, but you'll want to be in the room. Indeed, I did want to be in that room, knowing from past experiences that any meeting or event that Eve organized would be meaningful. So I showed up, as the invitation indicated, at a nondescript building in Stone Ridge, New York, and surrendered my cell phone to the smiling young volunteers at the front door. Best to have all communication devices outside the room, was the explanation, which of course heightened my anticipation about what would transpire within the room. I entered a large room and saw Eve standing at the front with folding chairs in a circle. Mingling about the room were some familiar faces. The meeting's other conveners, Kimberly Crenshaw of the African-American Policy Forum, Naomi Klein, award-winning author and activist, independent media entrepreneur and journalist Laura Flanders, and Jane Fonda, actor and activist. We were asked to find our seats, and Eve began. We are living in dangerous times, was her opening line. And such times call for new levels of activism from all the communities represented in this room. Let's begin by identifying who's in the room. One by one, the introductions began. I'm one of the founders of the Women's March. I'm the executive director of 350.org. I run Project South. With each introduction, the level of leadership and activists' credentials became more impressive and, for me, more intimidating. I could feel my anxiety building. 
How was I going to identify myself? I have no title and was no longer running an organization, having left my CEO position at the Paley Center for Media the previous spring. I could say that I was the CEO of Pat Mitchell Media with its grand total of two employees, including myself, but that felt wholly inadequate to explain why I belonged in that room. I mentally rehearsed some other options. I could say I was a lifetime advocate for women, true enough if a little vague. I could list some of my previous titles, but why make a point of being the former anything? I was struggling with, to come up with how to identify myself in the present, an identity that would hopefully give some indication of why Eve had included me in this circle of activists and leaders. Finally, it was my turn. Before I knew it, I heard myself saying, I'm Pat Mitchell, and I'm a dangerous woman. I'm not sure exactly what prompted this personal declaration of dangerousness, but I could tell from the looks of surprise that I needed to add a bit more context. At this time in my life, about to turn 75, I continued, I have nothing left to prove, less to lose, and I'm ready to take more risks and to be less politic and polite. As Eve said, these are dangerous times, and dangerous times call for dangerous women. That got a big sisterly yes from Eve and others in the circle, including Jane Fonda, who was sitting across from me, and stood up declaring, well, I'm older than my friend Pat, so that makes me even more dangerous. Laughter erupted, of course, and I could sense that others were contemplating exactly what becoming more dangerous to meet the challenges of dangerous times would mean for each of us and for the work we had convened to consider. Certainly, Jane Fonda's life of activism is a textbook case for being bold and brave. During our many years of friendship, I've, I'd witnesses, I've witnessed her willingness to take risks for a good cause, to speak out and show up, even when it meant personal peril or sacrifice. At 81, she is still on the front lines, campaigning for domestic and restu restaurant workers' rights, standing with the American Indian communities, protesting natural resource exploitation at Standing Rock, and busier as an actor than ever. In her book, Prime Time, Jane advanced the idea that Older women have the potential to become the most powerful population on the planet. She's a great example of how we embrace that potential at every age. My personal potential for becoming dangerous is perhaps more directly linked to my friendship with Eve Ensler. From our first conversation in war-torn Sarajevo in 1998, I've been deeply inspired by her courage and her commitment to do whatever is necessary to end violence against women everywhere. Taking risks comes easier to Eve than to many, writing and performing the vagina monologues, making it the centerpiece of a global movement, V-Day, to end gender-based violence, is a transformative approach to activism that I feel privileged to have experienced. Yes, I was an activist and woman's advocate before I met Eve, but through my relationship with her and as a board member of the V-Day movement, I've met activists facing dangers every day to create change in some of the most difficult places on earth to be a woman. But until that day, I had not felt dangerous myself. Declaring myself a dangerous woman still feels a bit, well, dangerous. And I readily admit to some second thoughts about declaring it even more widely and boldly as the title of this book. But every day since that convening, I'm discovering more about what being dangerous means in my life and why I believe that it's time for us, women and the men who stand with us, at whatever age or place in life's journey, to embrace risks and engage with renewed passion and collective purpose in making the world a safer place for women and girls. Pat Mitchell, Becoming a Dangerous Woman.
Mary in Mill Creek, uh, Washington. Hey, Mary, what's up? Hi, I just wanted to say that as I listen to all this, uh, the sides of the abortion issue, it frustrates the heck out of me. I feel like what we're really looking at is not at what point, you know, we're picking apart when is an appropriate time, what is a justifiable time for abortion. The issue that people are getting lost in is it's about a woman's right to autonomy and self-determination. In order to be fully equal in this country, I need to be able to make all of my own decisions about my life, my body, within the confines of fair laws that apply equally to all human beings that walk uh, amongst us. And the premise of which uh, that self-autonomy, this, uh, it's all based on that. Everything, that is the foundation. The ability to, of self-determination is the foundation of equality. Personal bodily autonomy. You can't be forced to give blood. You can't be forced to donate your organs. Even when you're dead, you can't be forced to, to donate your organs. We, you know, we all and have these. And if you're stupid, you can't be forced to do, uh, you know, a, a COVID a vaccine. The right. bottom line is, if we are going to have true equality, that means it has to be more than just white males that get to have total control over their own personal choices. Amen. Very brilliant. Thank you. Lynn in Sixton, Missouri. Lynn, you've got the last minute. Yeah, uh, I was just talking to your girl there about uh, nobody seems to bring up, bring up the fact about a vasectomy for men. It doesn't even be just discussed by anybody. That we have a choice that we can we can abort uh, uh, future children. Yeah, you, you can pre- prevent pregnancy. Yeah, um, that's right. I mean, I mean, nobody. It's just like it's all on the women. It's all on the women. It, it just no. makes me sick. I get it. I get it. I had one after our third child was born. It was like I, I got a vasectomy. Louise delivered the babies. I, you know, she did her, she she did hard duty. So I figured I could do a little bit. Uh, you know, more men need to do that. I, I agree with you, but that's not going to solve the problem. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, which means you, and and. If there was ever a time to make sure that everybody you know is registered to vote, it's now. So get out there, get active, tag your in. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.